Warning, sexual violence will be extensively discussed within this podcast. Welcome back to Defining Deviant Podcast. Last time we left off talking about the idea of paraphilic disorders according to the DSM-5. Today I'm going to continue that discussion and talk about how paraphilic disorders are linked to sex crimes, but that they are not the same thing. We'll talk more specifically about what qualifies as a sex crime within Canada next time, but this time we'll just be talking about individuals in non-clinical settings, so people who aren't going to jail. There is a really big difference between what someone derives sexual pleasure from, or what they're sexually attracted to, and what actions or behaviors they engage in. This is something that's going to come up many times in the discussions that I have and is always going to be a topic in sexuality because people often fantasize about things that they never sexually engage in. And it's often associated with a lot of shame for people. So they may have even intrusive thoughts about sexual actions that they don't want to engage in and have shame about even having those thoughts. So by definition, they're intrusive. You yourself may have had a sexual fantasy at one time or another that you afterwards thought to yourself, what quite was going on there? Or maybe you haven't. But for many people, what happens on in their sexual fantasies, again, does not extend into their sexual behavior. When we talk about research in the context of sexual disorders, we really need to talk about the fact that a lot of the research into paraphilia specifically has been done on male offender groups. We're only really seeing a large body of research in the last couple decades in terms of extending sexuality out to different groups and more sex positivity and those sorts of topics. There's a real dearth of information on female sexuality in particular and female paraphilias. There's a lot more information in terms of male paraphilias or non-clinical settings with males. Also missing information on people who identify as non-binary or other groupings as well. And that's some of the research I would say is up and coming right now. So one thing to note is that although I mention the limitations of research, there's a good reason why there are limitations with regards to sexual crime and sexual disorders. That being, obviously, we can't really have clinical trials or case control studies where we activate someone who sexually assaults another or those sorts of things, right? That's completely unethical and would never be something that can be done. Most of the research really involves case reports or is theoretical by nature. If we think about paraphilias, it's important to think about them in the context of what I would say is the medicalization of crime questionable aspects. Criminal behavior is incorporated as a piece of diagnostic criterion for criminal paraphilias. Despite criminal behavior being such a criterion, there's not a ton of empirical evidence to suggest that criminal behavior is a legitimate symptom of having a paraphilia specifically. 
this is where we start to see that they have been fleshing out the difference between a paraphilic interest and a paraphilic disorder as of the last version of the DSM-5, which I talked about last time. It's been argued that the use of criminal-based criterion within paraphilias is a way to medicalize sexual behavior that essentially most of society sees as abnormal or outside of their acceptable standards. In terms of real outcomes associated with such criterion, the reason it often comes up in the context of forensic psychology is that some have argued it allows for the rights of individuals being diagnosed to be routinely violated. The reason that this is said is that many of the individuals who have criminal paraphilic disorders are living in controlled environments such as prison or locked psychiatric units, and the full remission specifier requires the individual to be symptom-free for at least five years while in an uncontrolled environment. By having that specifier, it essentially makes it difficult or really impossible for those individuals ever to be judged as successfully treated, essentially in full remission and released. The individuals who make this argument state that the APA is equating committing a crime with a mental disorder that can never be resolved and only rarely can be in remission. If we think about criminal paraphilias and what that means, These are the paraphilias that typically involve non-consenting partners. It's important to note that many individuals that have these criminal paraphilias would still prefer to engage in typical or what you would call quote-unquote normal sex with a, you know, normal physically mature consenting human partner but they have this predilection and this, at times, compulsion to engage in these behaviors. If we think about technicalities and the DSM criteria, again, the interest versus disorder, exhibitionism, which is showing yourself off, or your genitals in particular usually, frauderism, which is that rubbing up on a non-consenting person, and voyeurism, which is looking on people who are in a state of undress or in sexual activities, they are paraphilic disorders, really only if the individual has eroticized the non-consensual aspect of the activity. The psychological definition of those things requires that the individual wants to be engaging in it because of those non-consenting partners. But even if those individuals did that without really having sexual pleasure out of the non-consensual part, that behavior is still a criminal act according to our criminal code. So to be clear, what I'm saying is that someone can have no voyeurism disorder because, say, they didn't have sexual pleasure while engaging in their voyeuristic activities, but they can still be charged, technically, by the criminal code with voyeurism. The difference between the disorder versus the criminal behavior poses this question because, again, we're talking about wanting a certain very specified type of sexual activity. Does developing a relationship with prospective partners because they have some sort of desirable characteristic indicate a paraphilia? We could think of something as basic as what if someone will only date blondes? Or what if somebody only likes to be with women with large breasts? 
or really, really likes men with muscular physiques or will only date someone who can engage in really critical based thinking and conversations. The question is, is how can we distinguish having a sexual type or an attraction type from other paraphilias? Why have we decided that certain things are paraphilic, like fetishes, for example, that are non-criminal? Why are those considered paraphilias versus, say, someone who's just into large breasts? Receiving such a diagnosis typically is usually made as part of a court-ordered evaluation if an individual has been arrested or they're about to be released from prison. But it can also be used as evidence of the need to incarcerate individuals involuntarily. This is where that question of utilizing the information comes in is because rather than being used to assist the individual with a diagnosis of paraphilic disorder, the purposes sometimes of those sorts of diagnoses can actually be preemptive incarceration. Individuals under treatment to protect society may be put away or institutionalized in order to be safe for other people. We're going to talk about that more in future lectures, but an example of that would say be in the United States where they have civil commitment that they can put on individuals who are labeled as really deviant sexual offenders and they get sent to institutions where it's up to the board there to decide that they have been rehabilitated enough to go back out into society. But as you can imagine, typically the individuals that go there and the way the systems work, almost nobody leaves. It's used as a method to permanently incarcerate individuals, even though they've served their prison time. So we are going to talk about sex crimes, obviously, but I'm also very interested in paraphilic interests in non-clinical samples. So that means people who are engaging in these sorts of sexual activities, but just engaging in it in the community and engaging in it for their own fun and their own pleasure and trying to understand the role that, you know, sexual education and how clinicians and other individuals can destigmatize and work with individuals that are engaging in such activities so that they can do it safely. A study that I did over the last few years collected participants from both Reddit, the online forum, and UBC Okanagan, which was the campus I've been doing my PhD on. And they filled out questionnaires to look at rates of paraphilic interests, but also paraphilic associated sexual behaviors. What this means is that I essentially had them break down whether they were engaging in these things in terms of just general sexual fantasies, whether they were engaging in masturbation while they were having these fantasies, or whether they were actually engaging in these paraphilias within their sexual behaviors. My sample was comprised of 173 men and 356 women, and we did see very similar prevalence rates to the existing literature, which was a great start. These rates are generally higher than people expect, which is why it's important to do this sort of literature so that we can destigmatize and put more understanding out there of how common these interests actually are. In this sample of individuals from my study, 
Overall, 56% of them reported the presence of at least one paraphilic interest, and many, many individuals reported more than one paraphilic interest. If we look at just the sex of the individuals, 63% of the men had reported at least one paraphilic interest, whereas 53% of the women had reported at least one. This difference was significant with men showing higher rates of interest. And again, this is in line with what we see in the existing literature, that men tend to have that higher rate. In our study, men also reported higher levels of arousal for the paraphilic interests. These were asked on what's called a Likert-based scale, and it's essentially like a one to seven. So men in general were rating a higher number than women were when it came to how aroused does this interest make you. There was one exception, and this was the case for sexual submission. Women had higher levels of arousal and higher rates of sexual submission, which is in agreement with previous literature. One interesting feature of my study was that the women often identified that men with tattoos were really sexually arousing and, and identified that specific characteristic as something that they really were attracted to. So I've had many discussions in my class about what reason might be there that women identify tattoos as sexually arousing. And some of the things that we've talked about are that women tend to be really drawn to that bad boy image, that, you know, image of almost strength and independence in an evolutionary sense, I would say, that bad boy. More individuals in the current culture tend to think of tattoos as sexually attractive. They think these individuals will engage in more fun and risky behaviors. Other evolutionary theories have also come back to that idea that it may be hormonal and this drawn to power and status. Back to my study, we also looked at those paraphilia-associated behaviors, which broke down these sexual fantasies, masturbation fantasies, and sexual behavior. And we found that more people tended to engage in sexual fantasies, followed by masturbation fantasies, followed by actual engagement. And this is not surprising. As you can imagine, it's much, much easier to engage in a sexual fantasy about a paraphilia than it is to get a sexual partner involved in such behaviors or actually get to the place of masturbating to it. Individuals may have those sexual fantasies and then have some sense of shame and then shut down and not actually engage in masturbation. One aspect we considered in my study was whether the individuals were interested in legally feasible versus non-legally feasible paraphilic interests. And this comes back to that idea of criminal behavior I talked about before. So I wanted to understand if whether the individual was interested in something that was legal, such as BDSM activities, versus something that was illegal, such as pedophilia, or voyeurism, whether that made a difference in their sexual lives and sexual satisfaction. What I found was that those who were interested in legally feasible paraphilic interests had high levels of sexual satisfaction, whether they were engaging in these sexual behaviors or not. However, 
Those interested in the criminal paraphilic interests or had a blend of criminal and legally feasible interests. Sexual satisfaction was high when they were engaging in the behaviors, but very low when they were not engaging in the behaviors. This brings a question to how criminal feasibility plays into someone's satisfaction. This may suggest some sort of compulsive component to it, but honestly, it's very, very much in the beginnings of the literature. But it is interesting to note that the satisfaction levels do differ depending on whether it's legally feasible or not. A similar study was completed by Joyle and Carpentier, but it focused on a provincial survey of such interests in Quebec. They found that nearly half of their sample acknowledged a desire, one paraphilic behavior, and about one-third had actually engaged in a paraphilic behavior at least once during their lifetime. If we look at the specific paraphilias, voyeurism was the most common theme, with 46.3% of participants having a desire and 34.5% of participants having experience with it. This was followed by fetishism which saw 44.5% of participants having a desire and 26.3% of participants having experience with it. About a quarter of people had actually engaged in fetish-type behaviors. The next up was exhibitionism. That was about 30% of participants having a desire and about 30% also having experience with it. So nearly all that desired exhibitionism also had experience with it. I actually found this one surprising, but 26.7% of the participants had a desire for frauderism and 26% of the participants had experience with it. So what I think is interesting to note is that for exhibitionism and for frauderism, you see that those desiring it are almost always also acting on it versus something like fetishism or masochism, which had a difference in rates. It makes me wonder if that legal feasibility is actually playing into it like we saw in my study. When they looked at sex differences, they saw that men again reported significantly higher rates of both desire and experience for voyeurism and frauderism specifically, whereas again women reported significantly higher rates of desire and experiences for sexual masochism, which is the same as I saw in my study. The authors also looked at whether the communication modality would impact the sort of information that somebody gave if they use the internet or the telephone, whether that would change how much information they gave. As you can expect, and as I expected, they found that participants who were giving information via the internet reported significantly higher rates of experience with these paraphilic interests than when contacted via the phone. You can imagine how awkward it would be on the phone for someone to be asking you about this. So I don't think that this is unforeseen that we would see higher rates as we switch to more online-based survey methods. If we jump to the idea of BDSM, a lot of participants that took part in the studies that we talked about reported having paraphilic interests related to domination and submission, or that sadism and masochism. But most of the time in these surveys, even though we're asking about those paraphilic disorders, 
These are usually referring to consensual adult sadomasochistic activities. Remember what I said earlier that someone can have a paraphilic interest that is not a paraphilic disorder. If it's not causing harm or distress to others or impairment to that individual, then it's just a sexual interest that they have. And although we stigmatize sexuality and people may feel shame for it, we really need to start moving away from that idea and the acceptance of a spectrum of sexuality. BDSM itself stands for a blend of letters. There's three blends within there. BD, which is bondage and discipline. DS, which is dominance and submission. And SNM, which is sadism and masochism. You can see there are different themes even within those topics. Although BDSM has become more represented within mainstream media, it is still very often viewed as a deviant sexuality. Which is interesting, because BDSM can be many things, but it may or may not actually include sexual experiences. People may be engaging in BDSM activities without engaging in a sexual activity. In the broadest sense, BDSM can incorporate some sort of restraint, such as bondage, or pressure, or sensation, or just elements of power. So the restraint can be psychological. It doesn't simply have to be a physical relationship that is ongoing. The intent of such relationships are to involve an exchange of erotic and non-erotic aspects such as dominance and submission. Some people actually don't associate kink with sexuality at all, and it's more of a lifestyle or mindset that they have. But you can still find that many, many people object to the term BDSM um, or understanding that the BDSM is linked with paraphilic disorders because there has been that really push of the medical model onto these behaviors. And kink and BDSM are really focused on consensual-based activities, which is why they are seeking often that differentiation. If we look at a study of prevalence of BDSM interests, a study by Holvoet and colleagues found that 46.8% of their sample in the general population had engaged in at least one BDSM-related activity, and an additional 22% indicated having fantasies about it. That's about 69% of the sample that's either engaging or having fantasies about these activities. 12.5% of the participants indicated engaging in at least one BDSM-related activity on a regular basis. When asked whether they saw themselves as being interested in BDSM, 26% indicated that this was the case, and 7.6% self-identified as BDSM practitioners. It's interesting to note again that only 26% of them stated this was the case, even though many, many more were identifying as engaging in BDSM-type activities. The notion of what is BDSM versus what activities could actually fall under that seems to have a little bit of a mismatch there. As expected and in line with other studies, BDSM and fetish interests were significantly higher in men than in women. And we saw that the older age group from about 48 and older 
showed lower BDSM scores compared with the younger peers. As time goes on, it seems that people are less likely to engage perhaps in these behaviors. There's a cohort effect. Or it may be that the younger generations are more open to such activities, so there's now higher rates. There's alternative explanations there. We do know that of the participants who had that BDSM interest, 61.4% of them became aware of it before the age of 25. So most of them are engaging or finding out about these activities either during late adolescence or early adulthood. If we move to the idea of what kink is, Kink is more of an umbrella term that refers to a variety of sexual fantasies and non-sexual fantasies, fetishes, and activities that can occur. Kink is usually a term that's used to contrast with straight or what would be called quote-unquote vanilla type sexuality or behaviors, and kink is those sorts of non-conventional sexual attractions. But kink can also be used to refer to one's unique or very specific sexual attractions, such as I have a kink for hairy men or I have a kink for big breasts or something like that. The reason we discuss kink and define it is because we have to acknowledge that individuals that identify as kink often face challenges that those in the non-kink community don't have to face. And these are often left out when we are having discussions of kink or showing representations of kink. So there's a really big disconnection between reality and what the media puts up as essentially sensationalized kink activities. And this is really, really problematic because this can actually lead to medical endangerments. When people aren't learning safe kink practices, this can put them more at risk for harm. And this is especially the case when we know that certain individuals may be more at risk already due to their sexual orientation, race, or gender. So we have to be very, very careful about the depictions that we put in the media of kink and how that represents the entire community. There is overall a negative assumption that kink-related activities are somehow intrinsically harmful to an individual and their identity. There's many pop songs and shows that discuss kink, BDSM, and the fetish communities, but they often just really don't reflect them in an authentic way and in a, a complex way in terms of the variety and complexity of individuals that are often involved in such relationships. Although there are these challenges, Many individuals are still involving themselves in the kink community because they find it really affirming and validating and it provides them a strong sense of self and identity. And there's kind of been a pairing inherently of the queer community and the kink community as it's grown. And it's, it's provided this platform for individuals to have a safe way to experiment with gender presentation and identity and how to engage in such ways and experiment in such ways safely. When it comes to BDSM, the three aspects of it that are often quoted as being the most important are that the activities are safe, sane, and consensual, and that by engaging in such activities, this will provide an opportunity to really explore oneself. 
Tashra, who you can look up, is a website, tashra.org, which gives a lot of sexual health information and kink-related information. Their 2006 kink health survey found that 85% of folks who believe kink has impacted their mental health believe it has impacted their mental health positively. I bring this up because we're talking about the challenges, and the challenges sometimes are mirrored in media, but the majority of these kink-oriented folks have positive experiences, but most people take these misconceptions specifically that individuals who are engaging in kink-related behavior must have some sort of trauma or psychological distress or are really psychologically unwell if they practice BDSM or other forms of alternative sexual lifestyles. This is really not the case. Yes, some individuals who commit crime have paraphilic disorders, but many, 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 many most individuals who have paraphilic interests don't engage in criminal behavior. It's really important to look at those two things as different. Despite the fact that many individuals will never engage in any sort of criminal behavior, it's actually still risky for them to come out as a kinky person. There's still a lot of stigma and misinformation about the history of kink and fetish and even though it is existing at all times all around us, we just still don't have a lot of education on it. And that's where hopefully myself and other practitioners that want to give more information come in and and provide an opportunity to just start having these discussions openly and just let people get a little bit of information in a non-scary way. We know, obviously, from the research I just talked about, that a lot of people have interest in these kink-related activities. The unfortunate part is that stigma that I talked about that we still see attached to these interests. A study by Graham and colleagues examined the healthcare needs of kink-oriented patients, and they found that really most participants wanted to let their healthcare provider know about these interests because they actually had specific medical needs or concerns related to their behaviors, but only half actually told them. And that was because they were concerned that they would be treated poorly after the fact, or that there would be stigma related to the disclosure from their provider. This is their doctor, right? Like this is their healthcare provider that they're supposed to be able to go to openly so that they can get help with their healthcare needs. And this is you know, despite being a big part of their life, something that half of the people were not open to talking about with their doctor. When they talked to the people about what their concerns were, they saw that a main concern was that the providers would not understand the consensual nature of the relationship and that they would erroneously assume domestic violence. Obviously, a claim of domestic violence could cause serious repercussions within families and among the individuals. It's a trade-off for these people at that time that they don't want to have to put their family at risk just to talk to their doctor. I want to note that this is obviously a very complicated issue, as it's not unknown for someone to assert consent now, but later see it as non-consensual after they understand the coercive control that took place.
there are those are two different situations but i i do want to take acknowledgement of the fact that there are those situations where someone consents and after the fact it was not consenting but for the people and the individuals and in situations that i'm talking about these are consensual activities and that's where we come back to the safe sane and consensual I have a few quotes and I just wanted to read them in terms of some of the experiences that individuals have actually had with their providers. So the first one is the therapist refused to continue to see me until I acknowledged that I was being abused. In this circumstance, again, the therapist did not believe that somebody could engage in a consensual BDSM type relationship and therefore stated they wouldn't see this individual. I'm not going to comment on the ethics of any of these situations. I'm simply going to read the examples. Do note I have thoughts on them, but I will reserve those for another time. The second example is, I was told that my depression was due to my participation in BDSM activities and lifestyle practices. That if I stopped the quote-unquote negative behaviors, then I would feel better. Instead, I stopped seeing her and continued to full recovery. In this instance, the therapist assigning the depression-based symptoms to the sexuality of the individual, despite, I'm assuming from this statement, that the individual was probably engaged in those long before any sort of depression. It's possible to engage in BDSM activities healthily and still be depressed. Third example is, as a mental health professional, I have witnessed misunderstandings and misdiagnosis by my colleagues for service users with alternate sexual practices. The fourth example, mental health practitioner for the Veterans Administration's comment was that she did not want to get involved in my games. She looked at my BDSM lifestyle as counterproductive to my mental health and thought it was caused from a dysfunctional relationship with my father. Last one, I was told by several mental health professionals that my desire to inflict pain on another, albeit willing participant, was deviant and I needed to deal with my anger and bigotry issues. I don't know the context of that last one, so I'll hold off on that one, but in terms of those general experiences, I just want to identify the common theme here that there's not a lot of understanding among many practitioners about what kink-oriented activities are or what BDSM activities are. And that's where continuing education and putting this information is really there to start normalizing the fact that many individuals have these fantasies and these behaviors that they engage in. Individuals who are kink-oriented wanting therapy that is specific to their needs is not a concern without merit. Therapists really do need knowledge, skills, and awareness to provide appropriate culturally sensitive care in this circumstance, which would be, you know, called kink-aware therapy. Kink clients often come to therapy with unique presenting concerns, such as discrimination and stigma, as well as more common presenting concerns, anxiety and depression, obviously. These are a wide range of individuals. And for therapy to be effective, these people who are treating them really need to be skilled practitioners who are knowledgeable about alternative lifestyles. 
you can't really go in with a lack of knowledge, otherwise it seems that these biases tend to inherently rise up. Research has identified that therapists really need to have cultural competency, positive attitudes, comfort with sexual topics, and knowledge of their own competency limitations when it comes to working with such populations. It's difficult because although individuals may want to increase their competency, and I mentioned the need for training, there is a real lack of training out there with limited availability related to sexual therapy and alternative sexual lifestyles. Sources are becoming more available with each year that goes by, and that includes more professional conferences, courses, community events. I've really seen an increase in that myself, and it can increase their competency, but getting therapist uptake is also an important one because some individuals still don't necessarily see the importance of sexuality when it comes to therapy, but we know how fundamental sex and our relationships really are to our lives. So it's important to take note of that and for therapists to be willing to explore that area with others and get some education in it. One program that has been established for clinicians to become more skilled in this area is called the Kink Knowledgeable Program. It's an online training program that includes mentoring and different learning objectives, but the program overall states that it is designed to take participants not only through the cultural nuances involved in the practice of BDSM, specifically from a sex-positive psychotherapeutic perspective, but also to integrate this knowledge into professional practice. So the first part of that program is designed to simply expose clinicians to BDSM and the different factors that may influence individuals seeking therapy. So this program's really just gonna focus likely on identifying the stigma that these individuals are often faced with, but also how us ourselves as therapists and as humans can be aversive to certain topics that come up. In this area, it's really important that clinicians are able to recognize their own stereotypes about BDSM and to work diligently to actually understand the culture of BDSM and issues such as consent within that community and what it looks like. Even more, it's important to recognize that it can be difficult for clinicians to accept certain behavior as something that does not need to be changed, especially if it's something that they are not used to seeing. The second part of the training focuses more on the actual therapeutic interaction itself and how the therapist biases can be prevented from compromising treatment. So essentially identifying what those biases are but then how can that impact treatment and how can you allow that to not happen? Methods of assessment are also discussed and how they can be used to help the client modify their BDSM activities that may be unhealthy into healthy activities. So instead of coming from the perspective that individuals need to change the behavior that they're engaging in, it's instead about modifying the behavior in a way that will make it healthy for them. The last part of the training focuses on more complex circumstances, kind of the advanced training. This is where you're going to talk about BDSM in different cohorts of ages, BDSM among adolescents, BDSM among the elderly, 
but also issues such as BDSM among those with serious mental health concerns and how the internet plays into it and interactions with the law as well. There are a lot of topics from whether you just want to dip your toe into it, whether where you want to go to that advanced type of training, but it's a really, really good program that offers a lot of information. Another great resource that I refer to is the Kink Guidelines, a research and clinical group formed, which is aimed to summarize and document researching best practice for kinky sexual interests and those who are seeking clinical services related to it. They have hosted these guidelines for free, and it's quite comprehensive, at kinkguidelines.com. These guidelines uh, are in a 62-page document, which includes explanations, suggestions, tips. It educates clinicians on these terms, talks about what the activities could be, talks about what it's important for the clinicians to be looking at when working with these issues, And it really is, I would say, advisable for every mental health clinician to read these guidelines. It shouldn't be relegated to only the clinicians who work with sexual populations or those who identify as kinky, because half of the population has these interests, right? Like it's across age, across social and demographic factors. The realistic nature is, is that clinicians are already working with kinky people, whether they know it or not. It's simply being willing to understand more and start to open up those discussions with your clients if you haven't been able to thus far. So I want to note here that it's a, it's a challenge, but it's important for every clinician and our ethical responsibility to confront what our ignorance is and our biases and reject what is outdated and move forward so that we can serve our clients in an accurate and empirically grounded manner. That's why I bring the research to the discussions, because it's important to acknowledge where we're at now, not necessarily where we've been at in the past. When we talk about unique interests of the clients that come in with regards to kink, a few of the common issues that are seen are things like marginalization, stigma and social obstacles, internalized oppression and shame, coming out issues or other issues with identity, understanding deeper issues related to power dynamics, understanding and articulating boundaries or limits, needs, and interests, how to make agreements and negotiations and consent within kink relationships, and also just the lack of knowledge and understanding from the world about their interests. Despite those common issues, there's also a lot of gifts that individuals that come from this community identify. That includes aspects such as a deepening self-awareness and connection to their sexuality and self-expression, intensified communication and skillful relating to other people that they have really found deep connections with, exploring altered states and power dynamics, a vast opportunity for personal growth and self-knowledge and reflection, and the ability to celebrate diversity and live one's fantasy. Within relationships, it can also show us a great appreciation for the strength and courage that other partners can discover in navigating these waters with us. In terms of what they may need actual problem-solving help with from a therapist, this may be things like working through personal identity issues and how to define themselves, understanding their own kink-related impulses, wishes, and needs, 
increasing their levels of acceptance and reducing guilt, shame, self-criticism, self-hatred, standing up for their own boundaries and how to actually do that, identifying abusive and self-destructive behavior relationships so that they know how to disengage from those, navigating the coming out process and issues that come out after you've actually done that, and working on relationship conflicts in regards to kink or if you have a non-kink related partner and what their needs are. In terms of clients looking for a kink-friendly therapist, I would say that there's a few things to look out for, and that includes providing a safe space where you can explore these difficulties and face them in meaningful ways. You should really have the ability to explore your own ideas and feelings and thoughts with regard to kink and BDSM. Finally, I want to discuss a little bit about kink and marginalized communities, as there are a lot of deep aspects that people often overlook that can be a part of a kink-related relationship, and especially within the context of individuals that have intersecting identities, such as queer people of color, the transformative potentials for BDSM are vast, especially when used in a way that they can resist the common discourses and reconceptualize themselves. I don't want to actually speak to the experience of kink among marginalized communities, but I really do hope to have someone join us in the future to discuss this. But I am going to outline some reference materials that have been curated by Tashra.org in terms of understanding kink among marginalized communities for those who would like some more information. The first is called Kinky, the documentary. This is made from Weekend Reunion, who hosts Black BDSM events and is described as a sexy, informative, and humorous film examining Black sexuality and the fascinating world of bondage fetish and BDSM. And it's done in a series of lighthearted and thought-provoking interviews. The episode of Queer Talk featuring non-binary Black kinkster Sunshine highlights issues that trans and non-binary people face, as well as Black, Indigenous, and people of color kink stigmatism. Another example is Fifty Shades of Nope, being fetishized as a person of color in kink by health advocate Bianca Masuki. So that's M-A-S-U-C-C-I. And this highlights racism that exists within kink communities and finding a safe space to explore kink as a person of color. Noted by Tashra that if you are white and trying to understand this, then really seek to hear the experiences of Black, Indigenous, and people of color peoples in kink and reflect on what you can do to actually address your own biases and learn to welcome all with open arms. It's really important moving forward for sexuality to be dealt with without fear of abuse, rejection, or maltreatment. Another good resource that I saw was Bound Together, and that's with a dash between boundandtogether.net, and they have resources there specifically for Black, Indigenous, and people of color, peoples in kink, so that is another great thing to explore in terms of hearing from voices that are not mine and white related to this topic, which I think is important. Next episode, I will be discussing the 
definition of sexual crimes within Canada and how we use those definitions and how they differ from the psychological definitions that we've been discussing. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you again next week. If the information in this podcast has been distressing, please see the homepage for resources.